there. Close enough? So, is um, there? Yeah. Oh. Yep. And we're on the air. Oh, okay. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Welcome to Thorning Cross Haunted Nights Live. We'd like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. And we are your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're really excited because tonight we have a very special guest who's going to answer some really fun questions for us. Uh, D.P. Lyle, M.D., is the McCavity and Benjamin Franklin Silver Award-winning and Edgar, Agatha, Anthony, Scribe, Silver Falchion, and USA Best Book Award-nominated author of many nonfiction books, as well as numerous works of fiction, including the Samantha Cody, Dub Walker, and Jake Longley thriller series, and the Royal Pains media tie-in novels. He has worked with many novelists and with writers of popular television shows such as Law and Order, CSI uh, Miami, CSI Miami, Diagnosis Murder, Monk, Judging Amy, Peacemakers, Cold Case, House, Medium, Women's Murder Club, 1-800-MISSING, The Glades, and Pretty Little Liars. He was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, where his childhood interests revolved around football, baseball, and building rockets in his backyard. After leaving Huntsville, he attended college, medical school, and served an internship at the University of Alabama, followed by a residency in internal medicine at the University of Texas at Houston, then a fellowship in cardiology at the Texas Heart Institute, also in Houston. For the past 35 years, he has practiced cardiology in Orange County, California. Also, he is the co-host, along with Jan Burt, of Crime and Science Radio, a twice-monthly program on suspense radio. His new novel, Deep Six, is available now. And here is my co-author, Tamara Thorne, to tell you a little bit about it. All right. Well, Deep Six, uh, with Deep Six, D.P. Lyle debuts his newest series. And this is great. Here's a little about what it's about. Ex-professional baseball player Jake Longley adamantly refuses to work for his father, wanting no part of Ray's P.I. world. He prefers to hang out at his beachfront bar and chase bikinis along the sugary beaches of Gulf Shores, Alabama. But Ray could be persuasive, so Jake finds himself staking out the home of wealthy Barbara Plummer, a suspected adulteress. The mission seems simple enough. Hang around, take a few pictures, sip a little bourbon except Barbara gets herself murdered right under Jake's nose. When Jake launches into an investigation of his target's homicide, he quickly runs afoul of Ukrainian monster Viktor Borkov. Aided by his new girlfriend, Nicole Jemison, and Tommy Pancake Jeffers, his behemoth employee with crazy computer skills, Jake tries to peel away the layers of the crime. The deeper the intrepid 
trio, Dells, the more murders start to pile up, leading them to Borkov's massive yacht, where they just might be deep-sixed. And we uh, read a little bit of this. We've not read this book, but we, we browsed it, and we found ourselves totally engrossed. And so <laughs> yeah. now we want to write a book. But that being said, yeah. uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome D.P. Lyle. Welcome to the show. Glad welcome. to be here. Thanks for having me. You oh, we love it. Yeah. 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 So, so, so this is a, the beginning of a new series. And seriously, when we started reading it, we found that – First of all, the first thing we noticed was your opening lines. I mean, just your opening scene, but even your, you know, first few lines are just really impactful. And we were not able to really put it down. <laughs> good. Yeah, we read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. It is good. It is good. Um, and uh, the other thing I noticed about your writing is you have a really fresh uh, little things, you know, high-dollar neighborhood, things – just the way, a certain way that you phrase things that I, I found really fresh. And um, I wonder, is that something that comes naturally to you, or do you search for these things? Uh, I think it mostly comes natural. I mean, I came from a funny family, and all my friends are funny. The only person that's not <laughs> funny is my cat. He's not funny at all. Um, but uh, I don't know. I've always had kind of a sarcastic, quirky, irreverent view of the world and people in general. Um, you know, I think everything's funny. Um, you know, doctors and, and police always find the worst things on earth funny. But, right. you know, you had to yeah. be there. It actually was funny. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but gallows humor. But, uh, yeah, I've always looked at the world a little bit funny, a little bit off kilter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Were you just born that way? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mom, my mom was that way. My mom could make anything mm. funny. You know, dad was more serious, <laughs> yeah. but... but but mom never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> uh, mine too. It's a good kind of mom yeah, to have. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about black humor that people are so attracted to? At least I am. Um, it gets you through things. I remember on 9-11 thinking, I wonder how many years I'm going to have to wait before I can crack a joke. Because that's all I wanted to do to get past it, and I think that's true of a lot of people. What do you, yeah, what do you well, think, I think that is? I think really everything is funny if you if you look at it a certain way. There are humorous elements and and, and tragedies in anything uh, mm-hmm. if you look at it that that way. And it's it's not necessarily being callous or unfeeling about what's going on. It's just that I think it is a method of kind of lowering the pressure and and kind of taking mm-hmm. the pain out of whatever the situation is, you know, you laugh about it. You know, I always tell my patients, yeah. the last thing I tell them before they leave the office is don't forget to laugh a lot because it's good, good medicine. medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, nice. I went, I was sick as a dog years and years and years ago, and we, but I was not, it was flu, and I was not going to give up going to see Robin Williams live. And he started a rip. I got there thinking, what am I doing here? I can't even sit up. He started to riff a, like a 15-minute riff on cats. Yep. No kidding. I was over the flu in 15 minutes. It never yeah. came back or anything. It, it's proof. Well, he was a master <laughs> at it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were, were you influenced at all by the movie MASH? That was, I was a teenager when that came out, and the, the black humor in there, just I loved it. Oh, I've always said that uh, my my two favorite movies all time 
dramas is inherit the wind, you know. You got Spencer mm-hmm. Tracy. I mean, you know, it's going to be great, and it's about the yeah. monkey trial in Tennessee. Great, great, great movie. And my favorite mm-hmm. favorite comedy of all time was Mash because the yeah. stuff you have to watch it two or three times because the stuff coming out of the loudspeakers in the background is just hysterical. But you miss oh, it, it the first time you go through it because of the, what's yeah. going on in front of you is so funny. But there's stuff going on in the background all the time, and that to me it was just brilliant writing, brilliantly done. It was, and very black. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Realistic, yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, it's the old thing: if you don't laugh, you cry, and that's probably <laughs> part of black humor. <laughs> exactly. I'm walking all over Alistair. I think he has a question. No, no, no. You're fine. This is great. This no. Is great. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was surprised. I was surprised though when we when we were reading when we started reading Deep Six how funny it is because I don't know. I guess it's just kind of a you kind of expect uh, from the genre you expect it to be you know. Uh, kind of dry but it's really it was it's really funny and i actually you know as you know i definitely appreciate that i i like humor in just about everything uh we even try to do it in horror if we're you know doing you know fun sure. horror we just it's yeah. i think it's important we but, don't try uh, it's the characters that do it, it. Is, it yeah. i don't yeah, yeah. well yeah. I, I read a lot of elmore leonard and uh his stuff mm. is funny now it's not funny to the characters yeah. that's the way they are you know to them right. it's dead serious but to the reader yeah. it's hysterical because these guys are so funny and so off the wall, uh, most of them have no social redeeming value, but they're wonderful, wonderful characters, and he was a master at it. And most of my other stuff is more straight-up thrillers, uh, psychological, mm-hmm. police procedural, forensic, that kind of thing, the Dub Walker and the Samantha Cody series. And and But I wanted to do something comedic. I, I, I read a lot of Carl Hyacin, and I read Tim Mullaney, and both of them are just funny as they can be. And I always said, well, if those idiots can do it, I ought to be able to do this. Uh, I'm a funny guy, you know. But uh, but what's interesting is this is the first book I wrote that I didn't outline. I just had a few scenes in mind. I just started writing, and I let it go where it wanted to go. And uh, it actually was a very fast write. It was a, it, it kind of just unfolded. And uh, I'm working on the sequel to it now. And I didn't outline it. I just started writing and took off, let things go. Nice. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to read that one. <laughs> I, I can't wait yeah, to read both of them. There's, that's a, that's yeah. really interesting because I know, like in in thrillers, they usually require some some heavy outlining, and um, I think that for that reason, I would not probably be you know really happy doing that because we kind of do things the same way. We we have a basic idea, and then we just kind of see what happens, and it always goes you know mm-hmm. a, a, an entirely different direction. And I think that's yeah. part of the not only right. the fun of it as the writer, but also the joy of it as a reader. I think. Yeah, well, I think with I think with harder fiction where you're writing a, a story that you really have to conform to the facts, you have to have all the science right, you have to have the procedures right, uh, because you're writing a serious crime fiction story. But right. I wanted to do something more comedic, and and it's where absurdity and coincidence can come into the picture, and you don't have to explain it or apologize for it. You just go with it. And if you read mm-hmm. any Carl Hyacinth, yeah. I mean, my God. Those stories go yeah. off the deep end, chapter after yeah. chapter, and it's like, where is he gonna go next? And they're funny. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I read, I read uh, several years ago by him, and yeah, it was, it was just like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no basis in reality, but that's the fun of it, you know. That's the joy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> the one thing we do is we always make sure we know what the ending 
maybe so that we don't end up twisting in the wind. Do you do that, or did you do that with this one? Did you know where you were, where you were going with it? Well, I kind of had a general idea, but it obviously changed, and a lot of things changed. Yeah. And, you know, you find when you're doing this more or less free-form writing, you get about 50,000 words into it, and then you realize, <laughs> you know, I need to go back and add this scene and this scene and this thing and this thing. Uh, but yes. you just go do it, and then you move on, and then you start your editorial process, and then you change things again. But but mm-hmm. there weren't that many changes. The story just kind of took on a life of its own and took off. Do the characters take over for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they change. And, uh, you know, I've had this experience before, but I had it in this book, and I'm trying to remember which character it was. You get about halfway through the book, and, you know, I try to write the first draft fast and then go back and read it. And I'm going back, and I'm going back to the book, and I go back to chapter one, and there, there's Frank. Who the hell is Frank? And I realized <laughs> that halfway through, I changed his name to Jim because he was Jim. He wasn't Frank. You know, so now i got to go change Frank to Jim, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Because you learn them as you live with them for a while, and you realize this guy's not a Frank. This guy's a Jim. You know, it's, right, it's, right. and no. it happens. I've had it happen exactly. two or three times during, during the books I've it written. It does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> looking for Spot here. Um, so you've done you've done a lot of um, and uh, you've done a lot of uh, fiction and nonfiction, and I'm curious uh, which one you prefer and why. Um, well, they're exactly the same, only different. You know, <laughs> in in nonfiction, <laughs> you have to do all the research first and get all the material organized, and then sit down and write it. But you try to add a few creative writing elements to it, as it were, to make it a little more readable. With fiction, I do a little bit of research to kind of get a feel for the location and the, any what few things I think I need to know that I don't already know, and then I just start writing. And then you do the research as you go along. You look up bits and pieces, or go to Google Earth, or you know whatever you do to look mm-hmm. for stuff. Um, I enjoy them both. I like the discipline of nonfiction writing. I like the, the educational uh, component of that. I like to teach, um, but fiction is is freeing. Fiction's harder. There's no question it's harder. Yeah. Uh, I can write nonfiction tired. I cannot create new chapters in fiction if I'm tired. I, that's why I usually write yeah. those earlier in the day, you know. Interesting. But, Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just takes more of that spark, I guess it is. Yeah. Whereas nonfiction, you're you're kind of relating facts and putting them together and trying to make them cute and clever. But with mm-hmm. writing, it's all got to be cute and clever, you know, writing fiction. Right, right. <laughs> An- another so, thing you did here, right in the first of the book, uh, besides setting the scene so well and the voice, you know, the, the PI's voice, you got in, in a single paragraph, everything you really needed to know about your hero. And it, it, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, he's talking, this is like page two or three, I think. Um, a quick burst of laughter escaped her. This is his ex-wife. College and plump lips, that's rich. You couldn't investigate a flat tire. You're an idiot. Sort of explains the divorce, doesn't it? Partly anyway, and before, back when I played Major League Baseball, she thought I hung the moon, could do no wrong, took her to the best restaurants and nightclubs and vacations down in South Beach, sometimes Europe. Tammy loved Paris and loved playing a Major League wife, rubbing shoulders with big-name athletes, believing that she could be a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, et cetera, et cetera. And, but now we know everything there is. This guy was a Major League player. Something right. happened, and you get the whole tone and feel, and you worked that in so yeah, fast. Yeah, 
Well, just congratulations. We were really impressed. We well, that's what you're supposed to do in thrillers. You don't have a, you have you don't have the uh, the time to go into great detail on a lot of stuff. Yeah. You have to make it quick and dirty. Yeah. You really people who want to write like this should read you just because it's a well, lesson in itself. Bless and, you. Oh, bless you. I, I love this book. Have you 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 know, work in cardiology, you, you, you do all kinds of things. How, when do you find time yeah. to write? What is your, what is your writing schedule like? Uh, it's simple. I don't have one. Um, I refuse, you know, uh, mm-hmm. practicing cardiology for 40 years. Uh, you know, your, your time is pretty much set by other people, emergencies and on call and rounds and office and, you know, pretty much your day's full, you know, 12-hour days and all mm-hmm. that stuff. A lot of times back when I was doing it full-time, um, and, and you are always got to be somewhere, always got to be doing something. And yeah. so I refuse, I refuse to allow writing to become a job. Um, right. To me, that would take all the fun out of it. I'm fortunate mm-hmm. I don't have to do it for a living. I really, really admire writers who write articles and, and, and newspaper stuff. In, in other words, they grind out words for a living and then uh. have to find time to create their fiction. Um, I, I really admire people that are able to do that. At least these things are, are separate from each other. They're different parts of the yeah. brain. They're different parts of everything. So uh, you, you don't wind yourself up and get fatigued before you sit down and start trying to create some prose. Yeah, different parts of the brain. Are you talking about nonfiction versus fiction? Uh, practicing okay. medicine versus writing fiction. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. okay. I was going to go somewhere else with that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, that's, that's but the same way with that, too. But, uh, yeah. but yeah. nonfiction <laughs> writing still writing. you still got to create words and yeah. chapters and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then you have to put all that <clears throat> stuff in order and remember it. That's the hard part. Right. <laughs> We'd rather just be creating. <laughs> but, exactly. Okay. But it is fun. So you do several series of yep. thrillers, right? And you want to tell us about them a little bit? Well, uh, yeah, the Samantha Cody series, Sam is a cop and a professional boxer. Um, and there's three books in that series. And all of Sam's stories have a little what I call woo-woo in them. There's a little... Uh, metaphysical there's a little things that may not Mm. be what they seem to be or maybe they are and there's that little current underneath all of her stories with the dub walker series dub is a forensic expert consultant and so his stuff is pretty much down the line uh, as far as facts and, and forensic facts and police procedural facts but both of them a lot like jake even though jake's probably a little funnier have a sarcastic, irreverent streak in them because I like writing characters like that. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the Royal Pains was pretty much set up by the TV series that had to follow those characters <laughs> as they were created. But uh, but uh, now this is a whole new character, a whole new series, and uh, so far I'm having a lot of fun with it. That's the best. What what's, what do you think of writing in somebody else's universe? Like um, the uh, TV yeah, it was, uh, you know, I liked that TV show. I watched it a lot. It, it uh, After about six years, I think it kind of ran out of stories like most sitcoms do. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed Royal Pains. I liked uh, I liked Hank, and I really loved Evan, who's uh, the class clown. Um, and he was the one that was always 
get, getting everybody in trouble, and he was the, the thing that started, that really started all the stories, it seemed like, week after week. They started and ended with him, Hank's brother. But uh, working in a Malu, you know, writing about the Hamptons, which I've never been to in my life, um, <laughs> and writing about characters that weren't my characters, it was different. It was different. But, uh, yeah. again, it was, it, was, it was an interesting process. It sounds intimidating. <laughs> uh, no, not 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 really. Because again, it was li- it's light fiction. It's not. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you take those characters, you yeah. create new stories, and you put them in it, and you turn them loose. And uh, uh, it's not serious because the show's not serious. Uh, it, oh, that's it's, it's fun. It's 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 light, which Aww. was a new kind of writing for me. And uh, I probably wow. would have never would have done these series if I hadn't have done the Royal Pains. Because it kind of gave me freedom to uh, step outside the bounds of reality a little bit, you know, it's a, <laughs> to make things a little lighter and a little more fun and a little more, you know, off uh, off kilter. Mm-hmm. Do you have any plans for how many installments you're going to do in the Jake Longley series? No, I don't. I'm, I'm doing the next one, and then I'm already outlining another one that is another whole new character that is much darker and much more real. Uh, if a story comes to my mind that, uh, you know, like the Sam books, I wrote the two Sam books, and then I wrote the three Dub books, and then I came up with another story, and I said, this is a Sam story, so I went back to that. Um, right. it, I think it depends on which character is best to drive the story. Um, right. And, well, and uh, yeah. so I, I don't want to get wedded to having to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. I would oh, just no. do that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Um, I am eager to hear a reading from Deep Six, but uh, first let me take a quick break and remind the listeners okay. that uh, you're listening to Thorn and Cross on the Night Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarthorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thorneandcross.wordpress.com or if you tweet, our handle is at thorncross. Be sure to visit us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash thorneandcross. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And our latest novel, uh, titled Mother, a psychological thriller, is available in ebook and paperback everywhere books are sold. Uh, okay, so Deep Six. I would love to hear a reading from that. And then mm-hmm. I want to talk about forensics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, Deep Six, right, as, as Tamara said a while ago, um, you met a little bit of Tammy, which is Jake's um, ex-wife. And Jake is an ex-baseball player. He and Tammy got married. As Jake, as Jake said, he married the hotness and, and divorced the insanity because Tammy <laughs> is insane. She's off the wall. She has no filter on what she says or what she does. She's just crazy and one of my favorite characters. In the story, you heard about the murder. There is a murder. It's a neighbor of theirs that gets murdered. Tammy doesn't yet know that her husband, Walter, Walter Horton, who is an attorney who actually handled the divorce, between Tammy and Jake has, <laughs> has come become a person of interest in this murder, and a detective named Morgan is investigating the murder of Barbara, and he's gone to uh, Walter's office, and Walter says, "Fine, you can search my office. I didn't have anything to do with this. You can search my house. You can do all that." So Morgan started the search of Walter's office, and now he's heading to the Horton residence where Tammy is, who has no clue 
that Walter is a person of interest are that the police are coming to her door. And, okay, this is Chapter 14. Tammy Horton did not suffer unexpected interruptions well. Not ever, not from anyone. Shouldn't a seven-figure home in an exclusive neighborhood protect her from intrusions, even from an occasional solicitor who somehow found his way into the community? How did these nuisances get past the guard gate anyway? Nuisances like kids selling candy for new basketball uniforms, local charities scratching around for donations, and don't even get her started on Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Didn't they have enough money anyway? So when the doorbell buzzed, she ignored it. When it buzzed again, she glared in the direction of the hand-carved oak double doors and took a sip of her wine. Sure, it wasn't anywhere near happy hour, but she was watching a cooking show after all. How could she... How could she get into viewing all that food preparation without a glass of wine? Didn't seem right. With the third buzz, she placed the wine glass on the coffee table, a copy of Southern Living Magazine protecting the expensive wood. The fourth irritating doorbell scream brought her to her feet. She had been smack in the middle of the final round of the Great Gulf Coast Chef Challenge on local station 16. She had faithfully watched every episode at, as 20 local chefs were whittled down to two for the grand finale, which pitted Claudelle Pulver and her mile-high strawberry shortcake featuring four layers of rectangular buttery pound cake, sauternes-soaked strawberries, and sweet cream ganache against Georgette McClure's kicked-up key lime pie, the kick coming from its cayenne pepper-tinged crushed, crushed pecan crust and rum-infused whipped cream topping. The three judges were in the middle of their tasting when she snatched up the controller, paused the DVR, and marched toward the front door, prepping her tirade en route. This better be good, she said as she swung the door open. I don't think it will be. It was Detective Bob Morgan. Behind him stood two geeky dudes in jeans, white shirts, and blue windbakers with some sort of official-looking gold emblem on the left breast area. Not what Tammy expected. Surprise and curiosity tamped down her anger a notch. Detective, what can I do for you? She glanced back inside. Had she paused the DVR? Morgan thrust a piece of paper at her. We need to search her home. What? Your husband consented. He waved the page at her. Got his signature right here. She glanced at it but didn't really see it. Well, I sure as hell don't consent. Morgan gave a slow nod. Well, that presents a problem. It sure as hell does. She jammed one fist against her hip. We don't really need your permission since Walter, the homeowner of record, has given us the green light. She waved a hand. Do you see him? I don't, and if he isn't here, you aren't coming in. Morgan folded the page and slipped it into his jacket pocket. I can grab an official warrant in no time if that's the way you want to play it. What's this about? Now she propped a second fist against her other hip. What are you looking for? It's an ongoing investigation. Can't really say more than that just yet. You sound like a TV cop. Thanks, Morgan said. That's what I was going for. Come back when you can tell me what this is about. She started to push the door closed. Morgan's hand stopped its progress. Miss Horton, I'm afraid you'll have to step outside until we get this sorted out. The hell I will. Ma'am, if I even suspect you might be destroying evidence, I can come in. Warrant or no warrant. Such circumstances override the Fourth Amendment. Was that true? Tammy had no way of knowing, but she was sure Morgan and every other cop on the planet would lie if need be. It was their nature. At least that's what happened on all those true crime shows she watched on Discovery ID. And didn't they do the same thing in Law and Order? Even Monk fibbed. So Morgan asked, can we get started? You still haven't told me what you're looking for or why. Maybe you should ask Walter. 
I told you he isn't here. I know he's at his office. We've got some guys searching his office right now. I don't understand. Call Walter. Wait here. Again, she tried to close the door, and again, Morgan stopped her. Leave it open and stay where I can see you. As I said before, it's an evidence issue. Walter will skewer you. Maybe, but for now, let's do it this my way. It'll be easier on everyone. She huffed out a breath, spun, and marched across the foyer and into the media room. The big screen displayed a frozen image of one of the judges with a fork full of shortcake hanging before his widely opened mouth. She snatched her cell phone from the coffee table, punched in Walter's speed dial number, and brought it to her ear. Tammy waited through three rings. Let me talk to Walter, Connie. He's busy right now, Connie said. He isn't that busy. Get his ass on the phone. Connie did. Walter wouldn't tell her anything, just that he explained later, but to let Morgan do his search. Look, Walter said, they're going to do it one way or the other, so just get it over with. Does this have anything to do with Barbara's murder? He sighed. Yes. I don't understand. She glanced toward the door where Morgan and the two officers stood staring at her. Let him do his job, Walter said. We'll talk later, but right now I'm a bit busy, okay? He disconnected the call. She stared at the phone, then dropped it next to, to her wine glass. She returned to the door. Okay, Annie, Andy, Barney, and Floyd, have at it. Morgan nodded. He and the geek stepped inside. I'll have to ask you to vacate the premises while we do the search. You're throwing me out of my own house? Just until we finish. How long will it take? Not sure. Maybe an hour. You guys would make good stormtroopers. Ma'am, he waved a hand toward the door. Five minutes, Tammy said. Can you give me five minutes? Ma'am, she jerked her head toward the TV. They're doing the final judging. I've been waiting for weeks. Ma'am, this guy was a broken record. The Gulf Coast Chef Challenge. I'm sure the key lime pie is going to win. Don't you think that can wait? Tammy felt frustration tears collect in her eyes. Why are you doing this to me? Ask Walter. And that's chapter 14. That is wonderful. (laughs) You really have a way with words. You do. Mm-hmm. You do. I love yeah. Tammy. <laughs> oh, she's yeah. great. Characters yeah. like her are the best. They are the best to oh. write. They're the best to read because they're just no holds barred crazy. We love them. Yep. And as you <laughs> read do. the book, you'll find out that even though she and Jake are divorced, she calls Jake all the time, wanting him to do something for you know talk to Walter uh, about something or do something. And I, she still goes to Jake. And, and a Jake, I don't want any part of it, but he knows she is relentless and will right. not give up, mm-hmm. and he just ends up doing it anyway. So that's their <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> I love it. It's nice. Yeah, yeah she... definitely copies of that book. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. it's called Deep Six for the listeners. It's called Deep Six, and it's the first installment in, in uh, uh, a new series by B.P. Lyle. Uh, uh, Jake Longley is the main character, uh, so yeah. Right. Uh, I we have. I want to ask you about some of these uh, television shows that you've worked, you know, uh, worked with. There's Monk, Pretty Little Liars, CSI Miami, Law and Order. How do you? How did this come to be? And and what like like? I don't know. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, it actually you know started through various writing. Uh, seminars and stuff and uh, conferences and uh, Lee Goldberg and uh, uh, Matt Witten and Paul Guyot, they're all screenwriters and I met them and they started, you know, consulting me on their scripts and stuff. Uh, I only work with the writers. I, I don't work with the TV 
production of the show itself. Right. I find that tedious and boring. But <laughs> but writers, I love writers and I love storytellers. And uh, so like um, Lee Goldberg, he wrote all the Monk novels. And he wrote all the Diagnosis murder novels. And uh, mm-hmm. I helped him with virtually every one of them. And on a couple mm-hmm. of the Monk TV shows, I helped him with the scripts of those. Oh. Um, Matt Whitten was the head writer for CSI Miami, and we worked on the first episode of that. Uh, I think they both wrote stuff for House. I, I can't keep it all straight because they come and they go. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, they, they, they contact me and say, I've got this scenario, you know, and, and let's talk it through, and I need to know what makes sense and what doesn't. And uh, so I kind of helped them at least get the science mostly right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And Hollywood <laughs> facts are merely a suggestion, which is fine. Yeah. You know, it's entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it and learned a lot. And, uh, you know, anything related to storytelling, I enjoy getting involved in. Nice, nice. So do you so have fun. a lot of, do you, do you have a lot of, you know, like, you know, writers and stuff that are, I, I'm just trying to imagine, like, you know, a lot of people being like, "Oh, let's go ask him." Do you have? Do you get a lot of that? Or I mean, is oh, annoying oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, actually, I have uh, probably on my computer in the neighborhood of six thousand questions I've been asked over the years from writers, and wow. I have three books that are question and answer books, and each one of them have mm-hmm. about one hundred and eighty questions in them. That's Murder and Mayhem's the first one, then Forensics and Fiction, and then more Forensics and Fiction. And what they are is their collection of questions I've gotten over the years. And the writer will say, I've got this scenario. I've got this body. It's it's dumped in a lake in Minnesota in January, and, and it's found a month later, and it was strangled, and what's it going to look like, and what, can they do toxicology? So they'll give me their scenario, and then so I will explain the science to them and tell them how to use it in their story. So I've collected, mm-hmm. you know, four or 500 questions in those three books of the best ones I've received over the years. But that's kind of mm-hmm. how it works, you know. They have a story question, and I try to help them get it right. <laughs> nice. So now, now I have, let's talk about some weird forensic stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. First of all, first of all, uh, we came across, in our own writing, we, we were, you know, dealing with poisons and, and all kinds of things. And basically what it came down to is this, and, and, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if I was going to kill somebody, and I'm not, <laughs> yeah, that's what they all say. I know. <laughs> if I was, was going to kill somebody from based on what I've learned through my own research, probably like if I was going to poison someone, right? I would yeah. probably use belladonna. Yeah. Is that a safe bet? Yeah, I mean that that would work, and and you know arsenic still works too because nobody looks for it. Um, the, the the poisons that are easiest to trace are the ones that appear in drug screens because those can right. be done in ah. a couple of hours. And that's amphetamines and narcotics and benzodiazepines and, you know, cocaine and heroin, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those mm-hmm. all pop up easily. But if it's not, then they're harder to find. And by far the two most dangerous places <laughs> are your local nursery and your medicine cabinet. Mm-hmm. Because there's deadly stuff in both of them. And uh, writers often try to cover a murder with drugs by using an overdose of a medicine that the person's already taking. You know, digitalis or quinidine or uh-huh. whatever. Right. Or they go to the plant store and they get oleander. Didn't somebody write a book about that? Yeah. And uh, uh, foxglove, which is digitalis. And, of course, ethylene glycol, which comes from... Uh, 
um, antifreeze. You know, but things can oh, be yeah. found in the nursery that are very deadly. They don't pop up on drug screens, at least not not many of them. And so, if the medical examiner doesn't know the circumstances of the death, doesn't know the symptoms, doesn't know what happened, or is lazy, corrupt, or stupid, you know, <laughs> then he's not going to spend the time and the money to go look at these more sophisticated things, which does take time and money. And a lot of small mm-hmm. towns obviously don't have a budget for that. Right. Yeah. Or the experience. So they're not going to look for deadly nightshade. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, was, that no. was the one. That was the one that stood out to me. You know, because we were looking, trying to figure something out, and I'm like, you know, if I was ever going to kill somebody, it would be, you know, belladonna, deadly nightshade. It, yeah. Absolutely. And <laughs> it'll do I'm it. Not <laughs> <laughs> now I have foxglove growing in my garden. Yeah, don't eat it. So I I could use that to do something. Yeah. Oh sure. <laughs> something dastardly, I suppose. Oh yeah. Um, it's deadly. What about the What about the leaves on my tomato plant? Tomatoes, potatoes, they're nightshade family, aren't they? Well, uh, yeah, but the the amount's real low, and you'd have, you'd have to take a uh, lot of them. Yeah. Uh, with belladonna, oh, okay. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot, and oleander either. You know, dogs mm. and cats will chew on oleander and die. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Some some plants are more toxic than others, but the one thing is everything's a poison. Even water, if you drink too mm-hmm. much of it, can kill you. And oxygen, if you drink, if you breathe 100% oxygen for too long, it'll wipe your lungs out. So everything's toxic. Wow. It's all a matter of dose. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's good advice okay, for have, writers. I, I mean, one. not fillers. Okay. Yeah, I have another one. That this is something. This is something I see on TV all the time that I just don't buy, and I could be wrong. But unless You're probably infant, not, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> unless it's an infant or somebody who's already basically dead, how easy would it really be to kill somebody with a pillow? Um, well, I mean, obviously it depends on, on the person. Uh, it's, it's obviously if you've got someone who's healthy and, and mobile, it's very difficult because they're going to fight you. And you're gonna, they're gonna know they were smothered, but they're gonna scratch you, they're gonna bite at you, they're gonna kick you, they're gonna do all this stuff. You better have, right. you know, six cab drivers and a marine helping you. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's gonna, you know, their teeth are gonna tear up their gums, and there's gonna be bruises all over their face. You might fracture the nose. There's gonna be blood and saliva, and you know, spit and everything. It's very, very, very hard to do because it, it takes a while, uh, a couple of minutes. Right. Or longer, right. but if someone's old, immobile, or sedated mm-hmm. to the point that they can't fight back, or are so incoordinated, or in a basically in a coma from drugs or a stroke or whatever, you know, like a nursing home situation, it's not that hard to do then. Uh huh. Right. So it depends yeah. on the circumstance. Right. I think we should write about somebody who commits suicide with a that would be awesome. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. in, in your in your book that's just been re-released, updated, uh, forensics for dummies, which right. I love. Um, you mentioned things that Hollywood gets wrong, uh, yep. the the pretty death and the quick death. Why yeah. are those wrong? Well, the quick death is because it's it's. Ask any emergency room physician. It's really pretty hard to kill people. You know, you can empty a gun in them, and they'll get to the emergency room, spit and yell and cuss at you and everything else. Um, And if they're drunk, you cannot kill a drunk. That's a medical certainty. You cannot kill a drunk. Uh, They will head on the family and kill the family of four, but they will walk away saying, what happened? Um, That's just a medical fact. Uh, But the point is, is that 
in order to kill someone instantly, say with a gun, you got to shoot them in the, mm-hmm. the heart, the brain, or the very upper part of the spinal cord. And of those three, oh. probably the very upper part of the spinal cord, if you cut that in half with a with a bullet, uh, you know, it's like a, a puppet with no strings. They go down. They, they the blood pressure drops to zero instantly. They're gone. They're out. They're oh. But uh, brain, people get shot in the head and survive. People get shot in the heart and survive. Um, it just happens. But those would be the three. Otherwise, getting shot or stabbed or something, it, it, you bleed to death usually. And that yeah. takes time. And then it depends on the nature of the wound and what vessels were hit and all that. And then mm-hmm. death is not pretty. Your, your makeup's not perfect. Your hair's not perfect. And you don't have a little flutter to your eyelids, you know, when they do the close-up. Uh, when people die very quickly, they become pale uh and the skin, when you touch it, becomes cool almost immediately because there's no blood oh. flow to the skin. And the skin mm-hmm. takes on a kind of a rubbery feel to it. It doesn't feel like living skin. And that happens literally within minutes. Um, that oh. difference. Um, so uh, dead people are pretty. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the, one, the one isn't there... Is, is it liver mortis where that's where all the blood basically loses the um, well gravity? It's not flowing anymore. That's where the blood yeah. settles, yeah. That yeah. takes – it starts immediately, but before it to become visible with the little blue splotches on the the dependent areas, the lower part, if it's laying on your back, mm-hmm. on the back, um, uh, it takes a couple of hours to start becoming real, really visible. It takes about four to six to eight hours to become really dark. Um, so that – that that's with time. That just takes time, um, mm-hmm. and rigor mortis takes time. You know, it, it starts immediately, but it's not noticeable for a couple of hours, and takes about twelve hours to be full, the body to be completely stiff. But uh, again, this is under normal, ideal circumstances. There's so many variables involved in this that it that it changes a lot. Right. In a normal. Uh say atmosphere an indoor atmosphere it's not too hot or too cold how long does rigor mortis last usually well the rule is 12 12 12 it comes on over 12 hours it stays for 12 hours it goes away for 12 hours but that is Mm. dependent upon many 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 things an example is if someone drowns Uh the rigor mortis comes about by by a chemical change from what we call atp to adp in in the in muscles that after oxygen goes away blood supply goes away that conversion starts happening. And as that conversion happens, the muscles get stiffer. And then when it relaxes after 24 hours, it's because of decay of the muscle and the fibers that are holding together start slipping and falling apart and the muscles relax. So if mm-hmm. someone is using up all their ATP, because this same reaction happens if you move your arm or wiggle your finger, you're using ATP to ADP, and then oxygen returns it from ADP back to ATP. And that's why you can do it over and over again. Take away the oxygen, uh-huh. pretty soon you've consumed it all. So someone's struggling and they're drowning. Rigor mortis can be at the time of death almost. We call that cadaveric spasm or basically instantaneous rigor mortis. If someone's running and they fall dead, their legs may stiffen almost immediately or within an hour where the rest of the body may take longer because they've con- consumed all these chemicals in that area of the body. Yeah, it's... Wow. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's uh, no fascinating. Uh, I know, yeah. yeah. No wonder you get so many questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, one, and another thing that I, that I, that I thought was um, interesting uh, for something that uh, I was writing previously was 
kind of like the, the nature of dead bodies. They can moan. Is that true? And fart. Uh, well, gases can seep out of the body. I mean, you know, if you have stomach air and lung air, you know, that'll, that might seep out over the first few hours, and, and that sometimes can make noises, and, and actually muscles can start contracting, and there can be little twitches and stuff. You know, that's the stuff of horror movies. Uh, right. uh, but those things do happen. They're not, all, they're not all that common. Then, of course, when they start the decay process, and that depends on environment and a lot of other things, particularly temperature, gases start building up inside the body. The lungs decay, the internal organs decay, the muscles decay, and gases start building up. And that's why bodies sink when they're thrown in water, but they will float after a period of time. Uh, in a swamp, that may be, you know, 36, 48 hours. In a cold lake, it may be three or four months. You know, you remember the famous uh, Scott Peterson, Lacey Peterson case. Uh, Lacey's yeah. body was dumped in the bay and didn't surface for four months because it took that long in the cold San Francisco Bay waters for the decay process to produce enough gas to make it buoyant so it would float and wash to shore. Yeah, terrible stuff, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is terrible. So aside from getting gnawed on by sea life, that would mean her body wouldn't be in too terrible of shape when it came up. Well, actually, in that case, if I remember correctly, because weights had been tied to the four extremities, they more or less disarticulated, and I think only the torso floated to shore. Uh, The head and the limbs did not, and Connor, the unborn baby, of course, had what we call a coffin birth, which means as the pressure of the gas builds up in the abdomen, the baby is forced out, and... um, yeah, the gruesome Ooh. stuff, gruesome stuff, yeah, but yeah. it happens. I, I shouldn't no. say I love it, but, you know. <laughs> All crime writers love that stuff. You know? yeah. <laughs> All yeah. writers do, too, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the stuff of nightmares. So um, I have a question for you. So out of, this is kind of a personal question, but I'm just curious about it. If, if out of everything that you know and everything that you've learned and as horrible as some of this stuff is, do you feel less or more afraid of dying because of it? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think when the time comes, everybody fears death. I mean, you know, why, why would you want to leave? You know, you're having a pretty good time here. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> but I think, I think the real fear for most people is the process. It's the getting from, being active and mobile, even if you're old and moving around and getting to the end of the road, it's that transition period. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's an uncomfortable time. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you're limited and all of that, you know, and, and, and you, you see people go through it. I certainly do in my practice and some of the most wonderful people in the world, but you see them just starting to wind down. You know, it happened with my parents. Yeah. It probably happened with yours. You just see it. And it's the transition that's the part you wish you could just say, you know, I want you to be healthy and happy today, and then in one minute I want you to be gone. You know? Exactly. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I don't want you to have, I don't want you to, have to go through this. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's, I, think mm-hmm. that's the, I think that's what people fear. The afterlife, yeah. who knows? Who knows what that's yeah. about? <laughs> so do you, think, do you think that the, you know, barring, you know, being brutally murdered or, you know, not not the process of dying, but but the actual act 
of dying. I don't know if I'm articulating this very well. Is it painful to die? And what I mean by that is not necessarily, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're dying of cancer or you were murdered with, you know, a rope or of course that's But that moment where the body lets go and you go from here to there, wherever there is, is that a painful moment? Do you think? I have no idea, you know, and, uh, you know, since nobody's come back to tell us about it, uh, uh, it's uh, there's no way of knowing. And again, it depends on the circumstance. But you know, everybody says, you know, I want to just not wake up some morning. And 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 so at least there's that worry that it could be. But um, my gut tells me, and, and you know, I've obviously witnessed quite a few deaths practicing cardiology, is that it's it's not it's not painful. It's just kind of like you take the breath and you know that's it. Yeah. 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 Wow. Good. That's kind of comforting, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Good enough. (laughs) We'll all know someday, I guess. Uh, Yeah, that's really comforting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, One other thing that you said that Hollywood has wrong is the one-punch knockout. Aside from breaking your your hand, why is that? Well, uh, because it's it's hard to knock somebody unconscious. I mean, it takes a pretty good blow and um um you know, your your store clerk amateur sleuth who smokes cigarettes, drinks beer and watches TV with Cheetos is not going to be able to knock somebody out with one punch. You know, you look at professional boxers and they go after each mm-hmm. other pretty good. Now, obviously these guys yeah. are trying to take a hit, but what they really are is they're trying to deliver a hit and they don't knock each other out that often. And then when they yeah. do, the guy they knocked out is awake in like 20, 30, 40 seconds, and he's saying, you got me with a lucky punch, you know. So <laughs> I see all the time where people are knocked out, they're put in the trunk of a car, they're driven for two hours, they open the trunk, pour water on their face, and they wake up and they're fine. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. If you're knocked out, you're going to wake up in a minute or so, and at least by five, ten minutes. You may be groggy, you may have a headache, you may be confused, you may be disoriented, imbalanced, and all that from the concussion of that. But if if you're out for hours, something really bad's going on. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you, know, you got you got blood in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Another topic we saw. Another topic we saw, and I'm not sure exactly what this means, but Ted Bundy's bite marks. What is that about? What's this? Well, you know, bite mark evidence has really come under fire lately because number one, the people doing it aren't uh, don't have standardized qualifications. Uh, they don't have standardized methods. Um, they are very subjective in many cases, um, and so it's under fire right now. And and the move now in forensic science is to start standardizing the training, the methods. And the, and the analysis of the results and all forensic techniques because we need them to be more exact. But in Bundy's case, and I think in other cases where the teeth are so unusual and you see a bite mark and this person had motive, means, and opportunity anyway, and you see a bite mark that absolutely matches Bundy had chipped and crooked teeth and, and all this. His teeth were not very pretty. And the bite mark on that on that girl were were exact matches. So in that circumstance, it's probably accurate. But in general, there's too many 
there's 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 too many overlap and too many errors, and again, not enough standardization. So in right. Bundy's case, it was probably real. They, he probably did right. the biting. I mean, almost for certain he did. And that was his mo. That's what he did. You know, he liked that. Yeah, well, not a nice person. Um, yeah, he was. No. <laughs> um, I always hear that if if it's death by carbon monoxide, somebody puts their uh, you know rolls up the windows and puts the yep. smog from the car inside. That turns your skin pink, correct? Yeah, what happens yeah. is it can also happen when frozen bodies, and I won't, that's all in forensics for dummies, and I won't bother you with that. It can, it can, uh, it can happen with cyanide, too. <laughs> can turn your blood cherry uh-huh. red. But carbon monoxide does, too. And um, okay. it, 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 it makes a, he, a compound, the, the, the carboxyhemoglobin is what it's called, which is cherry red. So the organs and the skin can be that. And the lividity, we talked oh. about that, instead of being blue mm-hmm. and gray, can be pinkish in color. It's not always oh, that case, but it can be. Uh-huh. Carbon monoxide well, about... is extremely deadly. Yeah. yeah. Extremely. Boy, People have even died from it by hanging off uh-huh. the back of a dive boat, you know, on the little platform. Oh, gee. And just uh-huh. breathing the exhaust from the idling engine. Because carbon monoxide combines with the blood 300 times stronger than does oxygen. And it can displace wow. the oxygen very quickly. Your oxygen content can drop dramatically, and you can lose mm-hmm. consciousness in a, in, in a big hurry. It's very deadly stuff. Is this something you, you don't even realize it's happening? or do? Often you, you don't. Often you don't. You wow. just get groggy and sleepy and go to sleep and don't wake up. And so this means you should not heat your home with your Weber. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, people now, do. <laughs> yeah. What about natural gas? A, a leak in the house in a closed yeah. up room. Yeah, what, natural gas is, is not the same because it doesn't combine with the hemoglobin, but it replaces the oxygen in the air, and so you end mm-hmm. up suffocating. But that's natural gas doesn't have an odor, but that's why they add right. odor, add an odor to yeah. a home gas so that you can smell a gas leak. But you know, mm-hmm. it's sometimes so faint people don't, and especially at night. If you get a natural yeah. gas leak and you're asleep, you know, they find you dead in the morning, unless the house blows wow. up, which can happen, too. Now, right, you suffocate. Right. So is that something yeah. you still don't notice? Okay, because it's replaced. If you're asleep, no. Realize it. But someone oh, who's, who's awake and experienced it might get short of breath, start coughing, get dizzy, and then they get confused and disoriented, and maybe they can't even find the door. I mean, this happens all the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my dryer did that, and uh, I was... Out, I was nearby working it. I smelled it, but it, I wasn't noticing it. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I felt suddenly sort of dizzy, so I went to check the dryer, and the, the pilot was off years ago. Yeah, yeah, so, that happens all no, the time. It's scary. Yeah. It is. Not nice. Yes. Nope. That's, that's why you don't leave your dryer on when you go out. Exactly. <laughs> so is, yeah. this, is this or, the kind of stuff – we haven't listened to, to to the radio show that you host. Is this the kind of um, yeah. stuff – talk about what let's talk a little bit about your show we're almost out of time well, but i want to get into that yeah too. uh J- yeah. jan burke who runs the crime lab project is also an award-winning crime novelist and jan's great uh she and i've been friends forever but the last three years we've been doing crime and science radio but what we do is we bring in professionals in the forensic science and the law enforcement right. and different things industries uh in fact on uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, Catherine Ramslin on, and she's going to oh, talk nice. about talk about her new book. She spent five years in conversation and researching the BTK killer, and has written this wonderful oh. book. 
And so wow. she's going to come on and talk wow. about that. Uh, but we've had all kinds of people on, uh, you know, Cyril Weck, the pathologist, uh, Bill Bass, who founded the Body Farm in Tennessee, Linda Fairstein, mm. who founded the SDU unit for uh, the, for New York, uh, Kathy Reichs, you know, a Bones fame, she's been on oh, there. Yeah. And we've just mm. had some, and, and Deborah Bloom, who wrote a wonderful book called The Poisoner's Handbook, everyone should read it. It's fantastic. Um, but we've had all, we've got all, the, all these kinds of cool people on there and had a lot of fun with yeah. them. And they're experts. So, well, and we're we going to have, have Iris podcasts. the dog from the FBI, who you know dogs can track dead bodies and drugs and yeah. explosives. Iris can track electronics. She's the only dog in the FBI Ooh. can do it and one of only five in the world. So Iris will be on in a couple of months. Fantastic. <laughs> Her wow. trainer wow. will so anyway. Where, where can yeah. people go to listen to this? Uh, it, well, if you go to my website, uh, that's probably the easiest way, which is dplylemd.com, dplylemd.com. You can click on Crime and Science Radio, and there you can see all the upcoming shows, and you can also click on all the past shows and listen to them because uh, they're all, you know, like your podcast and, and archive. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, great. Because right. we're going to be I listening. Have, <laughs> we, will, we will. I have one more. I have one more really weird question for you that, of course, nobody knows the answer to. But I just kind of interested in your opinion. What <laughs> do you think? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what do you yeah. think is the main reason why Jack the Ripper got away? Oh, luck. The luck. same reason most people get away. You know, it's <laughs> blind luck. Uh, but also remember what it was. It was in the 1880s, and um, yeah. yeah, it was at night, and there was all that fog, and you know he was a blitz killer. He came in and killed quickly on um, four of the five. One of them, he had time. He took her back to her place and had time to do his thing. He was probably in there for yeah. hours with that one. But the others were blitz, quick, quick in and out. Probably took a couple of minutes to do the whole thing, and then he disappeared. Uh, there was no real forensics then. There was, you know, it, it was luck. Most yeah. part, yeah. somebody could have easily walked up on him, but yeah. oh, they yeah. didn't, and that's why it remains an enduring mystery. But see, we it's love great. it. We love that nobody knows. I think. Do you have any? We'll probably yeah. never know. Yeah. I. You don't think so? I was going to ask that. I was going to say, I wondered. Yeah. I wondered who you thought it was, and if you think that it will ever evolve into, if there will ever be a way to find out. You know, over the you know, I mean, you remember Patricia Cornwell spent a couple of million dollars, yeah. and 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 yeah. and, and uh, she thinks she found the answer, and she may be right, but she may be wrong. The point is, is that, three, and I admire her for doing that. But three or four, yeah. three or four viable suspects have been touted over the years. None of them are perfect, but any one yeah. of them could be, or it could be someone that never got on the radar. You just don't yeah. know. Like Zodiac. And I have to say. Yeah, I have to say, she left out facts about. I was I did a Ripper book called Eternity, and she left out facts about certain ones that, you know, I don't think she should have left them out. It, it made yeah. her case more, but I was a little. Mm, but yeah. I, that everybody does that, you know. Anybody who yeah. does them has has they 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 take the facts that that support their their opinion, and that's right. fine, you know. That's but, true. But a smart person will read several books. And come to their yeah. own conclusion, and my conclusion is is we don't know, and we'll probably never know <laughs> right. and that's good as a fiction writer, does that please you it's yeah, fun. yeah, yeah, we yeah. always like questions, we always like uncertainty, yeah, yeah. I think Definitely. that I would be totally bummed if they discovered who it was, but you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Me too. Exactly. 
It'd be such a letdown. Found out he was Sam life. the Launderer, you know. So, exactly. You know, yeah. Really, you know. <laughs> He had a bad week. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we are out of time. Uh, listeners, I want to remind you, uh, Tamara just mentioned her novel, Eternity, um, and it is a Jack the Ripper. It's it's a supernatural Jack the Ripper thriller type of thing that takes place in a strange little town in California called Eternity, and it is on sale now until Saturday for 99 cents. The e-book. Yes. Yeah, just the ebook. book yes. Yeah. Yes. And... Yeah. Be sure to check out Deep Six by D.P. Lyle. This is good stuff. Uh, Also, if you are uh, a a writer looking for any kind of, uh, you know, information on forensics, this is he's a really good source. uh, Forensics for Dummies, uh, several others, and uh, check out his radio show. And uh, Doug, thank you for being on the show. It's been thank you. Of course, we have. Oh, we loved it. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> but please come back. <laughs> yes, I will. Yeah, please, sir. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah, there's a million other things we'd love to ask, so uh, we'll be in touch. Anytime. We would love to have you back. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, this is yes. good. All right. Thank you for having so, me. Uh, you are welcome. Oh, thanks. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.